Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Okay. All right. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back. We are going through the book of Romans, God's power to transform anyone, (laughs) anyone. Uh, I want everybody to imagine for a minute that you go and you have a blood test done. The doctor calls you the next day, and he says, listen, I've looked over your blood test, and... um, I want you to know that I have called you in a prescription at the drugstore. And you say, oh, okay, uh, thank you <laughs> very much, uh, but, but uh, what's the medicine for? And he said, oh, sorry, I didn't mention it. Uh, you have an extremely deadly disease. It's going to kill you in two days if you don't hurry up and get that prescription. <laughs> That's what you call giving the good news first, okay? Uh, What we're gonna look at right now is Paul has already stated the good news. The good news, chapter one, uh, verse 17, or 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So that's the good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves, and it has the power to save. But now Paul launches into the bad news. Here is the bad news, and this is why you need the good news so much. The bad news is that the wrath of God is right now on mankind, and the final day of judgment is coming. And once you know the bad news, It makes the good news even gooder. (laughs) A couple weeks ago, I was gonna, I told you I'd mention this story. It's an amazing, sweet little uh, encounter that I had last, not this past week, but the week before. It was out soul winning, Joseph and I, and came across a young lady who was sitting at her porch, and she was just about ready to launch into some smoking of some marijuana. I could already see it, but before she got to it, she jumped up and she caught us as we were walking up to her door. And um, we started talking and I asked her about her own life and I said, if you were to die today, do you know for sure where you'd spend eternity? And, and she said, um, I don't know, where would I go? <laughs> she asked me. I said, well, I don't know. I said, well, let me ask you this. If you were to stand before God and he was to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say then? I don't know, but you're giving me a lot to think about right now. (laughs) And I say, yeah. Um, Have you ever thought about this deeply? And she said, "Uh, well, actually, yeah. She said, I've actually died. I said, really? Yeah. She said, yeah, I've had an overdose and I died and they revived me. So yeah, I have thought about this. And in my mind, I'm thinking, man, uh, I hope you really, really have here. And began to talk to her a little more and, and just to begin to share with her that we are all sinners. And so I said, can I just show you this? And so I opened up Pastor Mike's tract like he's uh, reminded us we can do. Started going through the 
the plan of salvation right there. And I was talking about her sin, and I could see that even when, you know, we know we're sinners and we can acknowledge that, it takes a while before it really sinks in. That my sin, because we all kind of think our sin's not as bad as the next guy's sin. And so I, you know, I'm not that bad. And so I could tell she was still kind of there. But the more we talked, the more I, I, I realized I just need to keep talking about sin and describing what sin is and how it affects our relationship with God and the fact that he will not let us into heaven if we have this sin. And so I just kept going. I just kept hammering home on the sin issue until I finally saw in her eyes, realized this makes sense. God can't let me into heaven with my sin. And then you share the last two points there on that little gospel tract and it is like a breath of fresh air. The good news is gooder. <laughs> and all of a sudden, she, I could just see her soften, and I asked, would you like to pray to ask Jesus in your heart? And she said, yes, absolutely. And she prayed to ask Jesus in her heart. Once you know the bad news, it makes the good news even gooder. And so, here we go. We're gonna talk about the bad news here that makes the good news so good. The righteous wrath of God is where we're going to start, and that's what Paul launches into now in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Here's what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. All right, there's two main Greek words for wrath. Themos is one of them. Uh, it's where we get our word thermos. Themos. When, when Greeks used the word themos, they were talking about a passionate, explosive anger. Something that's boiling up and then dying down, boiling up, dying down. It's, uh, it's, it's a very, uh, very explosive type of anger. The other Greek word that they use for wrath is orge. And that refers to a more controlled punishment form of uh, wrath. In the literal sense, the actual word orge is a picture of plants and, uh, and fruits swelling with juice. It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and swelling and swelling and swelling. It's controlled, it's within that, but it's been building up for a long time. When we first think of wrath, I think, though the word that we tend to think of when we think of somebody as wrathful, we're thinking of themos. We're thinking that probably because we've experienced that from people. <laughs> we've experienced wrath from people at work or people in our family, maybe your parents, maybe your dad, your mom, whatever, spouse, boss, you name it. <clears throat> but Paul here is not using the word themos for God's wrath. He's using the word orge. God's wrath here is a controlled, it's a righteous, controlled anger at sin. And it has been building and it is swelling to the point where God is forced to act. He must act. Someone has defined it as this, a righteous and holy response to humanity's sinful, rebellious nature. That is the righteous wrath of God. Actually, in one sense, if you think about it, wrath, God's wrath is an expression of his love. Because God is love, he cannot stand idly by while evil is destroying his creation. What kind of a God would he be if he did not ever judge sin? So God's righteous wrath, he said God, God's wrath is right now resting on sinners. It is on, it is in sinners. And, and you know, John three seventeen reminds us 
that we are, we come into this world and if we don't have Jesus as our Savior, then we are condemned already. The wrath of God is already on man, on sinful man. You know, it's kind of like you're tied down under a guillotine and, and your moment is about to happen. They're about to let that guillotine loose unless someone frees you. The only hope for mankind is a savior and that's why it's called the gospel, which literally means good news. He rescues you from that guillotine. But why specifically does God have righteous wrath toward people? Why is this something that we even need to discuss? Well, the rest of the chapter really bears this out. So number one, his wrath, he says, is on mankind's ungodliness. That word ungodliness there literally means no worship or no reverence. It means no worship of God. People, by and large, have snubbed their nose at God. And this is the sin of ungodliness. And this is why God's wrath rests on mankind, because they have no reverence, no worship for the God of the universe. The second thing he says is unrighteousness. It's on mankind's unrighteousness. Unrighteousness there, that word really just means a violation of God's law. So God has set up a moral code. He's set up a moral code that, uh, that is perfectly righteous and it protects people. God's moral law is based on his nature, which is good, it's perfect. Anything opposite of God, anything opposite of his nature is harmful and it's bad for us. In other words, if, if God was a liar, then lying would be a good thing. <laughs> but it's, lying is not something in God's nature, therefore lying is unrighteous. And it hurts people. And it does damage to relationships. And so that's why God's wrath is on mankind because of their continual rebellious unrighteousness, going against God's moral law. And then God has wrath, he says, on mankind's holding of the truth in unrighteousness. Now, literally, this is the suppression of truth. What we could say there is not just holding truth in unrighteousness, but holding down truth in unrighteousness. The picture that is being painted is somebody who's trying their hardest to keep the lid on a container that's because something's inside and it's trying to get out. And they try really hard to keep that, that lid on. Somebody's described it like a little boy who's trying to hide a puppy from his parents, you know, in a little container in his room. And he, man knows, the point is here, man knows the truth about God and about right and about wrong, but he keeps pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down, suppressing it. Why? In unrighteousness, it says. In other words, he wants to do unrighteous things. He wants to live out his unrighteousness. So his unrighteousness then is keeping him from admitting the truth. He pushes it down because I want to do unrighteous things. Listen, when we come across people and we're living around people, people at work, wherever, we have to realize that this whole thing is not a mental thing more than it is a moral thing. When we witness to people, we have to keep this in mind. You know, sometimes we as believers and Christians, we're, we're nervous to witness to somebody because we don't know 
the answers to all the skeptics. What if they ask this? Well, what if they ask this? Well, what if they ask this? We don't need to be worrying much about that. I mean, I think we still need to have an answer. We need to know things and keep learning and learning so we can answer those. But we don't need to be worried about this because deep down, the people we're coming in contact with have a knowledge of the truth. They know there's a God. They know right and wrong. They know it. They're just suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. We don't need to be experts at defending the faith perfectly. Just speak the truth and let the conscience do its work. God has a way of working through this. Now Paul's gonna expand on this and we're gonna see this even make more sense here in the next few verses. He's gonna give more detail on what's really going to the hearts, going on in the hearts and minds of the people you know, your neighbors, your friends. You're gonna get an inside look at their minds. Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them or is clear in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So God has made it very clear or manifest in them, verse 19. So there is an inner witness in every person that there is a God. And there's an outer witness, verse 20, where he says creation. They, they, from uh, the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen. There's an inner witness in every man and there's an outer witness for every man. Now, Paul, when he's talking about creation here in this outer witness, he's using the teleological argument. That's the theological word for intelligent design. Other people have called it the fine-tuned argument. Christopher Hitchens, he is one of the most famous atheists in the world. And I believe he's dead now. He's a cruel, he was a cruel and nasty debater. He would, he would put his, uh, he would put his, alcohol right on the counter as he would debate uh, creationists and believers. And he would never give an inch. And he would say some nasty things. But some, someone one day caught him in, the, in a car, riding in a car, and the guy in the front turned around with a camera, put the camera in his face, and asked him what he thinks is the best argument from the other side. And Christopher Hitchens asked, answered quickly, here's what he said, quote, it is the fine-tuned argument. The fine-tuning, that one degree, well, one degree, one hair of difference, even though it doesn't prove design, doesn't prove a designer, you have to spend time thinking about it, working on it. It's not a trivial argument. We all say that. It's not a trivial argument. We all say that. Johann Kepler, the father of modern astronomy, made this amazing quote. He's right on. I love this. The undevout astronomer is mad. <laughs> He's crazy. An astronomer who doesn't believe in God, in other words, is crazy. Amen. You cannot look at the, the, uh, the universe and not see a God. You know, I've, I've seen people do some amazing works with Legos. Have you ever seen this? I mean, there's some amazing, amazing stuff. Some kids can do some amazing stuff with Legos, far better than me. Um, here's one picture of one that's just really amazing. Look at that thing. Um, it's somebody in and out of the water. It's just, that's incredible. And to think, one little piece of Lego, all, and, and uh, imagining 
if I saw something like that, if I walked up to that and saw this Lego thing or any Lego art that anybody has ever done, one thing I have never thought in my head is, man, those people must have put all those Legos into a room. Or this person must just have thrown all those Legos out in the water. And this, over hundreds and millions of years, all of a sudden, this formed in the water. That is amazing how that happened. I've never once thought that. Why does no one ever think that? Because it is more reasonable and sane to believe in an intelligent creator. Here's the point Paul's making. You have to hold down the truth to accept anything other than that there is a God. You have to hold down truth to accept Darwinism. You have to hold down truth. You have to suppress it if you're even gonna go there in your head. Psalm 19 verses one through three says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. But Paul's point is that they have no excuse. And by the way, all the, they, they continually come out with, um, uh, with studies and they ask people, do you believe there's a God? And do you believe there's a creator? And even with all the stuff that's out there today, still predominantly people believe that there is a God and there is a creator because it's just the most natural thing. You have to push away truth. You have to push away sanity to believe that there is no God. But Paul's point is here, you have no excuse. It's not that you can't believe. It's that you won't believe. But there's perhaps another aspect to what Paul is saying here, and I want us to think about this. Bible commentator William Barclay points out that there's something else that we see in nature. It's not just the intelligent design argument. It's not this teleological argument. It's the fact, something that we see in nature is that suffering follows sin. Here's the point. Look at nature. You break the laws of agriculture, and your harvest fails. You break the laws of architecture, and your building collapses. You break the laws of health, and your body suffers. And Paul is saying, look at the world, everybody. See how it's constructed. Look how God made this world. From the world, you know what God is like. You know what he's like. The sinner who sins shall die. The sinner owes a penalty. There is a consequence to sin. There is a judgment to sin. The sinner is left without excuse. And he's right. If you look at creation, you see there is a law of sowing and reaping. Just as with God and morality, there is a moral law. There is a moral law given by God. But man suppresses this truth in his unrighteousness because he wants his sin. And here's the problem. The sin that man wants so badly leads to a vicious downward spiral. And this is always how sin works. And that's what Paul's going to make this amazing case and how this sin will take a person down, 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 down further. What, what we're about to read is a description of what happens when man chooses God, or sh- excuse me, chooses sin over God. And it's unbelievable as we go through this now how perfectly descriptive this chapter is for all that we see in America right now. It is a description of our culture. It was a description of the culture then and now as well. So here we go. Number two, we're going to look at the predictable ruin of mankind. Verse 21. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful 
but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now notice the degression. Notice not the evolution, but the devolution. First, they are willfully defiant. They're willfully defiant because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. They refused to glorify God. They knew God, but they would not accept God as God. They refused to treat him as God. Now, when somebody does this, when they push away God and they refuse to accept God, this leaves a vacuum because every human being worships something. Every human being worships something. Don't ever let anybody tell you, I don't, I, I'm just a nothing. I worship nothing. No, you don't. Everybody worships something. Actually, there's no such thing as an atheist. After denying the one true God, the human then tries to fill this void with all kinds of things. Paul here calls them vain imaginations. Empty, self-soothing. Just pulling at anything that'll make him feel better. They're pulling meaningless thoughts out of nowhere with no factual basis, nothing to, to hang it on. So we might say then the next step is they become selfishly vain. Selfishly vain. Then, once they're selfishly vain because they're going after these things that don't exist and really have no, nothing to them, they're all empty, that leads then to a lost, a very lost person trying to find their way in the dark. They have no light and they become, and then they have a dark heart. They become internally dark, we could say. As it says in verse 21, their foolish heart was darkened. You start, someone starts by taking God out of their life. I don't want God. I don't want God in my life. I don't want him in our education system. I don't want him in the public square. We do not want God. Well, now what you've just done is you've created a vacuum and now we're open to anything, open to everything. And, and this is why we see what we see. We're getting a behind the scenes look at our neighbors, our coworkers, why humans choose the things we choose, the think the way we think. You know, I was looking at this, I was reading this and studying this week and thinking about all this. And I was thinking about the billions of hours and the billions of dollars that are spent on trying to understand the psyche of humans and trying to understand the psyche of criminals. And I thought, if, if we would just begin in Romans chapter one, if, we would, if all the psychologists and all those people that would just begin here, they would be light years ahead and be able to help a lot of people because this is where the emptiness and this is where the depression and this is just where the grasping for something f that ever we see around us, the lostness, the internal darkness, this is where it all comes from. Amen. But the digression continues and gets even worse and worse. Look what, look what happens next. People then become arrogantly foolish, we could say. Look at verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. You know, people in this world, they've, they keep going down, 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 and they look at Bible-believing Christians and they call us ignorant. They say, you guys are science deniers and you're just ignoramuses. <laughs> they call themselves intellectuals, though. But here's what they believe. Here's what these intellectuals believe. Something plus nothing equals everything. Somehow, that, that Lego dinosaur just appeared. They believe you can take apart a jet, put all the pieces in a hangar, 
put the pieces on the ground and give it enough time, it'll turn back into a jet. That's what they believe, and they call us ignorant. In other parts of the world, and in previous eras, it isn't evolution for them. It might be pantheism, which is the worship of nature. They might believe polytheism, many gods, hundreds, millions of gods. Paul says they profess to be wise, but they become fools. The word fools is the Greek word moros, where we get our word moron. And I'm not trying to be mean. Paul wasn't trying to be mean. It's just a very descriptive term. And that's, after that, they move to being then mindlessly religious. Look in verse 23. And they changed and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. Again, everyone worships something. One of the things Elaine and I like to do is we like to go to um, museums where we'll visit places. And I, we, I, the older artifacts that they have, the better for me. I love to see as old, the old stuff I can see. And it is amazing what you see. But in the cultures around the world from way back, the things that they would describe as gods and the things that they would worship and all these artifacts that they have found everywhere, some of them are absolutely grotesque. The faces, the mask that they use when they do all their, all their worship um, acts, just horrible to look at. I think that's a reflection of the darkness of their heart. I mean, that's their God, and that's where it's coming from. Because they make the in uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, to birds, to four-footed beasts, and then even to creeping things. You know what creeping things are? Insects. We have, man has unbelievably changed God. And once you go down the f chain this far, you can turn God into anything. And you can even turn him into an insect. Un unbelievable. In Egypt, they worshiped beetles. So it is a true thing that man can take God and shrink him all the way down to an insect. We completely lose our minds when we want our sin. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse if we keep pushing away God, suppressing the truth, and going after what we want. Today in America, we're much wiser. We worship dirt and we call it acres. <laughs> we worship wood, and we call it a house. We worship metal, and we call it a car. We worship sex, power, money, temporary feelings of pleasure. I'm sorry, but we're no smarter than, we were, than people were back then. We're, we're worshiping things. We turn the glory of an uncorruptible God into things. And after becoming mindlessly religious and worshiping the creature more than the creator, you know what God has to do? God has to step back and say, you know what? I'm gonna give you up to all this then. I'm gonna let you have it and it's only gonna get worse from here. Verse 24, wherefore God also gave them up. That's a horrible, horrible statement and it breaks my heart. God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. 
Amen. God says, you don't want me? Then you have your own way. You know, C.S. Lewis said at the end of life, it's gonna come down to only one of two things. You're either gonna say, God, uh, have your way, or God's gonna look at you and say, you have your way. And then man sinks to a horrible place of becoming, as Paul says here, sexually unclean. This is uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. He's specifically talking about sexual uncleanness. Historically, this particular sin has been the most revealing about how, a, how low a culture has sunk. Sexual uncleanness. When, you, when we see rampant sexual promiscuity, then we know that our culture is at a low point and our personal lives are at a low point. And notice how God sees it. They dishonor their own bodies between themselves. You know, God created sex to be a wonderful and a beautiful and natural thing within the boundaries of the male-female marriage. That was God's delight. It was his uh, pleasure to create that for us. And it's a wonderful, wonderful gift. But look what God says here. We do a great dishonor to the natural order of things and a dishonor to our bodies when we take that gift outside of its boundaries. A fire is warm and it's delightful in the fireplace. I love fires in the fireplace. But it's chaotic and destructive when it's in the living room, (laughs) in the middle of the living room. Fire will be destructive. Man has taken sexuality out of God's intended fireplace and has created, created complete havoc on this globe. We have changed the truth of God into a lie and we worship the body more than the maker of the body. They say, well, it's just a physical thing. It's just a physical thing, it's not hurting anybody. Really? Then why is it not okay for a spouse to have an affair? If it's just physical, why is that not okay? And, and why do abuse victims struggle even years later if it's just a physical thing? No, there is something much deeper and more destructive to this sin than, even, than other sins. <clears throat> we change the truth of God into a lie so that we can do what we want to do. Verse 26, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. Now this is the second time God gives them up. God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. This is God giving them up to vile affections. And I'm going to talk about things here, and I'm not, I don't want to be too graphic, but I do want to be real with what Paul is talking about here. <laughs> we could say, and I have said here, it's, it's, we could call it unnaturally evil. God gives them over to vile and unnatural affections. It is horrible. Paul is referring specifically to homosexuality here. And if those that say, well, God never says anything about homosexuality, they are, they are completely blind to what the scripture is saying. This is as clear as it could be. 
Homosexuality is a sin, like other sins, that can be forgiven. Let me be very clear about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 11 mention, it says, it gives a list of all kinds of things, wickedness and vile things, Paul lists there, and one of them is homosexuality. But then he says at the end, he, he's speaking to the church, and he says, but such were some of you. You used to do these things. You people in the church, you used to do those things, but not anymore. You're following Jesus. So that's, we know it's forgiven. We know a person can come out of that lifestyle and follow God. But the acceptance of this, of homosexuality, this sin as a a valid thing or as not sin at all is the most revealing thing to show how far that we've sunk as a society. If you can take something so clearly unnatural That's what Paul is talking about here. This is vile and unnatural affection. This is just completely unnatural. If you can take something that's clearly unnatural and treat it as natural, then you're you're fulfilling this verse here, professing ourselves to be wise, we become fools. The blindness in our culture on this issue just shows how deceived we've become and how far we've sunk down. But let me just say this. The world that Paul wrote to was perhaps even worse than we see around us right now in some ways. Rome was a place where this sin, homosexuality, was rampant. Greek culture taught that homosexual love was the purest and highest of loves. Many of the wealthiest Greeks and Romans were actually expected to have male lovers along with their wives, even young boys. 14 of the first 15 emperors, Roman emperors, were homosexuals. At times, the Roman Empire specifically taxed approved homosexual prostitution and gave boy prostitutes a legal holiday. Legal marriage between same-gender couples was completely recognized. Nero himself, who was emperor at the time of Paul, married a boy. So incest, pedophilia were also culturally accepted in Rome. They were down on the list. They were down on the hill. And let me tell you something, these are the things that are next on America's list. Mark my words. They will be totally accepted down the line if we keep going the way we're going. So when Paul courageously wrote these words, this is a letter to you, Roman Christians. This is the truth. You see this all around you, but this is the truth. This sin was nothing new. And notice the last statement receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. They received in themselves that recompense, that penalty for the error that was due to their sin. Homosexuality and promiscuity are unnatural and they will bring a recompense, a penalty, in their bodies. I believe this is speaking of sexually transmitted diseases primarily. Just like Dishonoring their bodies, earlier what God said, probably has some meaning toward that as well. You know, physicians from those times, ancient times, Paul, and even before that, described sexually transmitted diseases and infection from those times and much, much earlier. And I just want to say, watch out, America. STDs are continually on the rise. I just looked this week. CDC says gonorrhea is up 45% from 2016. Syphilis is up 52% from 2016. Of course, we just had this monkeypox virus. Predominantly, it was a disease that was spreading in homosexual communities. And there are other consequences, though, even beyond that. 
diseases that we receive when we violate nature's order, God's nature. Think about this, one of the biggest ones, and that is just extreme spiritual emptiness. That is huge. They live live in deep emptiness. And all that comes with that. If you think about even the word gay, that's only wishful thinking. They're not gay, they're not happy. The wide acceptance and encouragement of these sins are clear signs of how low humans can sink and will sink and how low many of us could go without God. Let me just remind us, all of us could go there. There's not a person in this room who couldn't go to the bottom of the, of the garbage can and even all the way through it. Verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over, here it is again, third time, to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. This is how far, this is how far things will go when man removes God from the picture. A reprobate mind. In other words, God gives them over as completely depraved. Completely depraved. You've been tested and found worthless. That's what uh, reprobate would mean. They know that sin brings judgment. They know it inwardly. But they run headlong into sin and even take pleasure in it. Paul lists here 24 things that are clear reasons why God's wrath would be swelling. Yes, the diseases and pains and the things that God, the consequences that God gives right now on this earth, on mankind, are part of God's wrath. And they're feeling it. And we feel it when we go against God. But these are the early warning signs that a greater judgment is coming. And that is the very bad news. It's bad news that you might get that someone might get some of God's wrath now, but it's even worse if you get God's final judgment. And when a society and an individual sinks this low, it's, it's a sign that God's wrath is already being revealed, just the simple fact that we've gone there. And there's more to come. We know that God is justified in his wrath and in his judgment. But I want to just mention something. There's also an element of mercy there. God may bring some wrath now on people, maybe through disease or whatever, to bring people to the end of themselves. God's a merciful God, and he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he will add this now to hopefully bring somebody to the bottom and say, okay, I I let go. Lord, I'm coming to you. That's what he wants. That's what Jesus wants. That's what God wants before it's too late. And when we see our sin for what it truly is, then then and only then we can embrace the good news. We see all this and we say, Lord, I need saving. I need saving. I need the gospel to save me. Just like that young lady who accepted Jesus Christ. Finally getting through the filters and all the stuff of everybody's 
telling her and the things in her own mind and finally just clearing that out and realizing, okay, I cannot get to heaven without Jesus. That's what makes the good news even gooder. And it makes us so good. Without it, you can't even see how good it is. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.